the people that arrested him was uh, Bannister Tarleton. Tarleton had said the year before in a very public English tavern, once he found out that uh, Charles Lee had accepted a position on the Continental uh, Army, that he would see the, quote, see his head on the end of a pike for it. And it was very coincidental that he was part of the uh, strike force that, uh, that arrested him. In addition to that, the people that he had served with in Portugal while uh, in the British Army, many of his comrades were in that same special force, which usually has all the earmarks of an intelligence operation on the British side. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are excited and fortunate to have Ken Scarlett, he is the author of Victory Day, Winning American Independence, The Defeat of the British Southern Strategy, which is a newly released book about the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. From first protest to final victory, from Palmetto Publishing. Ken's research background extends over 25 years and includes morale, intelligence, and Revolutionary War research in the Lower South. He is the former president of Scarlet Associates, and the Nathaniel Green Freedom Monument Foundation. He is the recipient of the DAR Ellen Walworth Medal for Patriotism and the DAR America 250 Commendation related to his Revolutionary War in South Carolina research. He is a business management graduate from the University of South Carolina and a master's graduate in intelligence and security from the Citadel. All right, so Cornwallis, what I hear you saying is Cornwallis and Clinton had this transition of command. And in that transition of command, tell me a little bit about that and then how that played out over the course of appointing Tarleton and appointing Ferguson and how that worked into the backcountry of South Carolina. Clinton wanted to get out of Charleston before the sickly season uh, was uh, really took full wind. And uh, Clinton was very familiar with what Charleston was like in June because he got stuck on Long Island, which is current day uh, Isle of Palms. It, he got stuck there in June of 1776 during the first Battle of Charleston and uh, knew the insufferable heat and conditions and, uh, and disease and mosquitoes. And he did not want to hang around in Charleston. He wanted to go back to New York. Uh, and so he left Cornwallis in command. Normally with the transition in command, there is a sort of a shadow period of time where the person that's going to be taking over command will uh, more or less shadow the commander and then begin making decisions on their own. When Cornwallis took over, as I mentioned before, uh, and, and Clinton was gone, he immediately put into effect what he wanted to do. And even though Clinton told him, you are to protect Charleston uh, is the primary object that you are always to protect. Uh, and and uh, prevent from falling into the enemy's hands, Cornwallis chose to disobey that order. Uh, there became some issues of lines of command authority at that time because Lord Germain, 
began communicating directly with Lord Cornwallis and going around Clinton, who was still the uh, head of British expeditionary forces in the North America. So Cornwallis felt that he was empowered to do whatever he felt he, he wanted to do. And Germain wanted him to prosecute a war of punishment and brutality so that the thought of rebellion would, quote, never enter the minds of British subjects again in America, end of quote. And that's exactly the way Cornwallis approached things. He suspended in the field habeas corpus, which basically meant because of the proclamation that he, met, uh, he wrote out as a written order, that troops, when they, were, when they would come upon any uh, homes or plantations, if they found uh, arms and gunpowder and that sort of stuff, they would often regard it as a stash, and the uh, people would be subject to immediate hanging at that time. Well, it certainly played out in the backcountry of South Carolina as they, as they pushed north out of Charleston. So tell me a little bit about the spy networks. Well, there were a ton of spy networks. In, in, in order to occupy a country, uh, basically there's a rule of thumb that 50% of the population needs to report on the other 50% of the population in order for an occupation to be maintained. Many people misconstrue this as, uh, as an intense civil war in the southern part of, of America at that time. And yes, there were elements of a civil war, brother against brother, and that sort of thing. How much were perpetuated by British policy and British tactics in the field, uh, and uh, uh, basically putting people on the British payroll to report on other people, is probably a number that could never be calculated, but that's uh, that's normally the way an occupation uh, maintains its success over a period of time. For people that are familiar with uh, the the Soviet Union being able to uh, uh, maintain possession of the satellite countries in the Cold War, they are familiar with that 50% spying on the other 50%. Now that said. There were all kinds of uh, uh, spies, people that ran secret notes, people that uh, would warn Nathaniel Green and Thomas Sumter and Andrew Pickens and uh, different militia commanders, uh, patriot militia commanders, of activities on the part of the British, uh, where, they were going, uh, where they were going, where they were expected to ambush. Uh, General Nathaniel Green, when he took over the Southern Command, which, by the way, he was uh, took over the Southern Command. Congress voted to to have him take over the Southern Command, which which stretched at the time from Philadelphia all the way down to Georgia. So it was really the largest area of operations uh, in the colonies at the time. And when Green took over, there was at least three of the colonies were under uh, British control, if not occupation. So, and uh, that was, of course, and with George Washington's recommendation. Uh, 
Many historians miss the fact that Washington and Green had a very, very close relationship. It may have been the closest uh, uh, friendship of, of any two people uh, during the American Revolution. Some years ago, the U.S. Postal Service produced a stamp with both Washington and Green on the stamp uh, and to, to sort of uh, emphasize that strong relationship. In the papers of Nathaniel Green, his command correspondence contains over 600 letters to and from Washington over the course of the American Revolution. That's a significant number. I'm not sure how many times Washington wrote his wife, but I would dare say it was probably not 600 times. So that relationship was very, very close. Back to the spy network, the spy networks were all throughout the colonies. Uh, uh, there's a question of whether or not General Charles Lee was actually an embedded spy from the beginning of the revolution, and of course that's explored in the book Victory Day as well. There are some curious behaviors by General Charles Lee over the course of the revolution that consistently point to him being a spy for the British. There were documents uncovered in the mid-1850s uh, that did not come to light until the mid-1850s, where the papers of General Howe were, were brought to light, where there were actually documents in Charles Lee's hands that showed that he was the original architect of the British Southern strategy. Uh, this is a very, very interesting find, and of course, this is available to read online and that sort of thing. But it's written in his own hand, and it's certified by uh, Howe's secretary that it's in his own hand also. So uh, that's sort of the smoking gun that he was, in fact, uh, a, a spy for the British. Um, he came back and fought or, or pretended to fight uh, in the Battle of Mammoth uh, after he was, quote, released by the British. So um, uh, I think you can probably put uh, Charles Lee down as, uh, as a traitor and, and or spy. Well, for our listeners, Charles Lee wasn't just some guy who had a house down in Charleston or, or, or somewhere up in Virginia, Williamsburg or something like that. He was actually from prominence. In Virginia, yes. Right. He was uh, served in the British Army. Uh, he was on. He was retired on half pay on the British payroll at the time that he accepted the uh, job as being on Washington's staff. He visited Washington two times to politic for himself. Um, he was. Uh, Let me ask you. I'm going to stop sure. you right there. Sure. You just said he got half pay from the British for his services in the British when he joined the. The Patriot side, the right? Continental Army, yes. Was he still getting getting paid by the British that half pay, or did they suspend that? I'm just curious. That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. Okay, all right, fair enough. Because fair now enough. that you're talking about the money, it is very interesting that uh, after the Battle of Charleston. Lee was uh, referred to constantly, and he referred to himself as the hero of Charleston. He would actually introduce himself as, Hi, I'm Charles Lee. I'm the hero of Charleston. And, uh, and of course, the, the newspapers throughout the colonies heralded him as the hero of Charleston uh, and credited him with uh, winning the first battle of Charleston.
Uh, my book gets into why that's pretty much ridiculous, but uh, nonetheless, he was regarded as the hero were of Germany. Were these South Carolina historians that were saying that? I don't know. Somebody else would have to sort of do a, a categorical analysis. Wow, because that's certainly not the history that, 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 that I have grown up on, that's for sure. So that's, that's interesting. Well, what happened to him after, after Charleston? What happened? Well, uh, after Charleston, he, he was responsible for the plan of defense of New York. Uh, and so did some exploratory stuff down in uh, Georgia. He actually took an army down to uh, Georgia, the way he reported it, to see if it was feasible to try and take St. Augustine. Uh, after that, Washington asked him to, to please come back to New York. He was considered the most experienced general in the Continental Army at the time, so there was a great amount of faith and confidence in him throughout uh, the colonies. The press heralded him as uh, being a very, very great man. He was an excellent pamphleteer, as they used to call him, meaning that he would produce pamphlets all the time saying how his thoughts on the, the colonies and so on and so forth. He was also a great letter writer, that, uh, so he would write letters about, uh, usually they were self-aggrandizing letters that the press would publish and so on and so forth. So he was well known throughout the colonies and many people had great confidence in him. As a matter of fact, it probably influenced the French to actually uh, join the Americans in, in the fight for, uh, against the British because he gave credibility to the professionalism of the Continental Army. So he was uh, very important from an international prestige perspective. He was also the most well-educated of probably any of the Continental Generals. He was uh, educated in, in Switzerland and Austria and spoke uh, at least five different languages uh, and fluently. And um, so uh, he was an excellent writer. He was considered to be a great strategist, uh, a very professional military person. He had served with Interestingly enough, again, we're, we're, we're now starting to get to the spy part of this. His arrest in uh, New Jersey during Washington's retreat from New York is very, very curious because the people that discovered him in this uh, tavern lady's home, quite by surprise if you, if you read the press at the time, was... Uh, the people that arrested him was uh, Bannister Tarleton. Tarleton had said the year before in a very public English tavern, once he found out that uh, Charles Lee had accepted a position on the Continental uh, Army, that he would see the, quote, see his head on the end of a pike for it. And it was very coincidental that he was part of the uh, strike force that, uh, that arrested him. In addition to that, the people that he had served with in Portugal while uh, in the British Army, many of his comrades were in that same special force, which usually has all the earmarks of an intelligence operation on the British side. The British intelligence operations were very, very good. They were led by someone uh, who many of your listeners uh, have heard about, uh, John Andre, who was hung in Benedict Arnold's place 
after the treachery that uh, Arnold committed at West Point. Unfortunately, John Andre's intelligence book, to my knowledge, has never been found. That book would be a treasure trove of information. So if there are any listeners out there who happen to know where John Andre's intelligence book uh, is, that would, I would really appreciate that information. So that details many of the spies throughout the colonies. Now, these are high-level spies. These are not message runners or people going, having hidden messages or, or running to warn someone of someone else uh, of something happening or the British going from here to here or where the gold is that the British are carrying and that kind of stuff. This is high-level strategic intelligence. John Andre wrote Benedict Arnold before the West Point asking him if he could um, request command in Charleston, specifically so that he could turn over Charleston instead of West Point to uh, the British forces as they were coming in, which is rather curious. Uh, anyway, that's in writing, so that's, that's one of the spy networks that John Andre was trying to develop in the Charleston area before the fall of Charleston, before the British took over Charleston. In South Carolina, there were many spies, and one of probably perhaps one of the first double agents in American history was a guy by the name of uh, Williamson, who was one of the leaders of the Patriot militia when Charleston surrendered in uh, 1780. This is General Williamson? Right. I think he was, yes, from that 96 area. He actually had oh, a plantation okay. uh, up there. Uh, after the fall of Charleston, he came, uh, he resided in Charleston. He had another home outside of the gates of Charleston. He was considered to be an advisor to the British at the time. He was right there in the command office, uh, which was at the exchange building in Charleston, which it, it still exists to this day. And so he was supplying information to General Green uh, for at least the last year of the war uh, in South Carolina. And his information probably prevented Green from getting kidnapped or killed on two occasions. Okay. So it was very, very vital information that uh, he was able to, to get out. Was he a patriot or was he a, a British? What, what was he? Well, that's for, he's a very interesting character. That's for a lot of people to decide. Andrew Pickens never forgave him. He was his commander, uh, and he never forgave him for apparently surrendering the patriot forces and would not speak with him uh, ever again. And after the war was over, when the South Carolina General Assembly was looking at immersement policies. And immersement policies were basically, after the war, if a person was a loyalist and they wanted to come back and live in South Carolina, if they could show that they would not oppose, they would be taxed some percent of what their plantation was worth. And if they paid that, then they could come back to the, uh, and they could live in South Carolina but they would have to pay the tax. Some were banished if they had committed atrocities or, or that sort of thing, then they were not allowed to live here. Williamson was slated to be banned from the South Carolina, and General Green interceded on his behalf and said uh, no, and he should not be immersed. At the end of it, I think he did get a small immersement, and Rutledge also was on the side of 
letting him stay also and giving him a minor immersement. I'll leave it to your listeners to figure out what side he was on. Probably he was in for the Patriot cause but thought it was lost after the British captured Charleston and did not want to have bloodshed. There may have been a financial interest uh, at that time, but that would be for another historian to take a look at and research. So the spy network at the command level was a, was very different than some of the civilian spy networks that Governor uh, Rutledge may have had and, and then Governor Matthews may have had and that sort of thing to gather intelligence. Nathaniel Green was very big on getting intelligence through many, many sources. As a matter of fact, his letters to uh, Francis Marion outlining how he wanted intelligence activities to be conducted are very revealing and they're very detailed, including how to pay spies, to get spies into uh, Francis Marion's employ and make sure that there's a constant stream of information. Also listing the kind of information that Nathaniel Green needed. As a matter of fact, he would say that intelligence are the eyes of the army. That was his big phrase, intelligence are the eyes of the army. So I must constantly get constant streams of information. And he set up his command uh, to be able to take in uh, intelligence information from spies all over and then have it verified and then figure out how quickly they could use the intelligence. Uh, timely intelligence applied rapidly can beat mighty armies, and Green knew this. So his head of intelligence was a guy by the name of Captain Wilmot, who was killed at the Battle of Dill's Bluff on November 14, 1782. Uh, Dill's Bluff is on James Island, and uh, the, the, the spot is, is still there today. There's a historical marker there. So um, Captain Wilmot was uh, the guy who really not only goes out and verifies intellig uh, strategic intelligence, but also then feeds it to Nathaniel Green, so Nathaniel Green can then issue orders in order to take advantage of that intelligence. Uh, intelligence poorly acted on uh, is no good to anyone, and Nathaniel Green knew that. So after Captain Wilmot was killed, Thaddeus Kosciusko, Colonel Thaddeus Kosciusko, took over as head of intelligence. And uh, for those of uh, people who are familiar with uh, Kosciusko, he was the uh, engineer, Polish engineer, that designed uh, much of West Point. For those of uh, your listeners who went to West Point, they're very familiar with Colonel Kosciusko uh, developing West Point. As a matter of fact, his, uh, if you go to West Point today, that's basically uh, Kosciusko's plan. For those that go to the Battle of, uh, see the field at Saratoga, uh, at the Battle of Saratoga, he was the engineer that figured out that he could bring Burgoyne's army straight down the river and have them uh, get trapped where there was no way out, where the cannons could just fire down on him, or he would have to uh, try and climb out of that valley area and then be subjected to uh, overwhelming uh, 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 tactical superiority. 
and which is how uh, Saratoga played out. You talked about paying for the spies. With what species? That is a very, very good question. As, uh, uh, as many of your listeners know, that continental currency had collapsed and it was basically worthless. The currency was really the king's realm or the king's coin. Uh, or uh, the, the coin of the realm, which was Spanish coins that were cut up. That had to be secured in order to be able to pay the spies. And you are exactly right. It was a very scarce thing to have money then. That's interesting. So you're paying spies with the money of the very people you're trying to defeat. Yes, sir. I don't think that's really changed much over the years, has it? <laughs> As we've gone through all these other conflicts through time. So that's, that's interesting. Give us some insight on your view of liberty and maybe even how that view of liberty was with the colonists at the time of the revolution. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you for asking such an incisive question. Liberty is, I think, for Americans to really be able to understand the war for American independence understanding liberty and the evolution of the meaning and the feeling of liberty uh, really needs to be taken into consideration. Daniel Webster didn't come up with his first American dictionary until uh, after 1800. So our language was very fluid at the time. And so as the, the, the meaning of the word would change based on events and Many times it never got written down until Daniel Webster came along and said, oh, here's what that means, and that's what's going to be the official definition. So the meaning and symbolism of liberty in America has strong roots in South Carolina, which will take a few minutes to unpack. Early in the war, the term liberty was largely a public outcry for the Crown to acknowledge Americans' right to free trade and no imposed taxation without representation in Parliament. When British troops began arriving in America and sporadic hostilities broke out, the use of the term expanded. Liberty was used basically as a statement to refuse to live under foreign rule or occupation at the point of a bayonet. Many Americans at that juncture just wanted to have the same rights as the king's subjects in England. They wanted to be left alone to decide local taxation and commerce issues. So that was the beginning. And then, as early as 1776 in Charleston, Christopher Gadsden and the Sons of Liberty met under the Liberty Tree and preached those Englishmen rights to the mechanics and people from the upcountry, particularly that were involved in this commerce system that made South Carolina such a profitable uh, 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 and, and vibrant uh, colony. In Parliament, Lord William Pitt expressed similar sentiments about Englishmen's rights should be granted to the colonies. When Pitt won the vote to rescind the Stamp Act, Charleston erected a statue of him on Broad Street. So the statue of Lord Pitt can still be seen at the Judicial Center in Charleston. So believe it or not, a Lord of Parliament was actually one of the early champions of liberty which is a very interesting way to, to look at things. 
Christopher Gadsden subsequently, during this Stamp Act rebellion, as it was called in South Carolina, in some corners, he uh, actually was uh, quoted in the Gazette, the Charleston Gazette at the time, with the phrase, liberty or death, in Latin. The general feeling that liberty was a quest for Englishmen's rights changed when the writ of habeas corpus was revoked by the British military command in Boston in April of 1775. We talked about that earlier. Americans were regularly arrested by the British military and held without trial. From that point, liberty took on a fuller meeting of restoration of habeas corpus rights, no taxation without representation, and free trade. The Gadsden's Don't Tread on Me flag became a popular symbol of that liberty and a warning to the British Empire not to provoke the colonies, lest we raise an army to oppose you. The word liberty took a giant leap forward at the First Battle of Charleston during June 1776 when the British launched their first amphibious invasion against America. The flag that flew over Fort Sullivan, which guarded the entranceway into Charleston Harbor, was inscribed with the word liberty. Very much like the hat that you're wearing now, Eric. <laughs> it was designed to unite and inspire troops arriving from across the colonies to help fight the British assault fleet and army sent to conquer America. Liberty took on a much larger dimension after that United Patriot victory and subsequent signing of the Declaration of Independence in August. Afterwards, many Americans would come to embrace the word liberty to also include their God-given right to life, their right to exercise free will within the law, and their right to pursue their own happiness without fear of arrest, without trial or oppression. These newly embraced expectations became known as the Spirit of 76. Everyone's heard about the Spirit of 76. That's what the Spirit of 76 was all about. And it, it, it ignited across the colonies after the First Battle of Charleston. Preachers such as Richard Furman and Oliver Hart began preaching at that point that liberty was a God-given right that no king could cancel. Henceforth, liberty or death became the battle cry that defined the war. Washington and Green, for example, used it at the Battle of Trenton. Colonel William Washington, uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Washington, is recorded to have used that liberty or death in his uh, raid on Hammond's store on December 31st, 1780, that probably had a lot to do with changing the course of the war uh, with the supplies that he captured there that went on to Cowpens. The Liberty Tree was another inspirational symbol to both sides during the war. The Declaration of Independence was read under Charleston's Liberty Tree on August 4, 1776. The British burned the Charleston Tree immediately after conquering the city in 1780 and jubilantly reported its destruction to King George. Thomas Hayward, a signer of the Declaration of Independence from South Carolina, was arrested uh, during the occupation and imprisoned in St. Augustine. While confined, he wrote a subversive song defining liberty as, quote, fearing no tyrant's nod nor stern oppression. 
His song, God Saved the 13 States, became very popular across the colonies as a challenge to the patriots to continue the war and never acquiesce to being a conquered people. So I, I think there's, it's important to make some distinctions between liberty and other words like freedom and independence. Thomas Jefferson referred to freedom as the right to choose the right to create for oneself the alternatives of choice. That's the way he defined freedom. And remember, he was the chief architect of the Declaration of Independence. The word independence was also uniquely defined in the Declaration of Independence as a separate political and economic system from King George's and Parliament's rule. In other words, a sovereign 13-state government recognized by the world order uniquely branded as the United States. In the Declaration of Independence, which first uses the term United States, United is a small u. So freedom was about the right to choose. What's the significance of the small u in your mind? Well, it was the beginning of the brand, and they had probably had not thought it through enough if a proper name was used at that time so they were in the King's the English, correct. Okay, all right. Correct. And uh, in addition to that, it, with a proper name at that time, if you capitalize something, in, it normally meant that it was a proper name. Okay, all right. So if they would have capitalized it and King George would have gotten the Declaration of Independence, he would have said, what is this United States? I got you. So... Freedom was about the right to choose one's course in life. Independence was about becoming a separate nation with its own government and economic system. And liberty was about no government oppression, military occupation, or arrest without trial, punctuated by an individual's right to pursue their own happiness with God's blessing. Thomas Paine wrote extensively about the meaning of liberty. So that provides your listeners with another avenue of study if they really want to get into a deep dive on the evolution of the word liberty. There's two other four important footnotes about the meaning of liberty. The meanings of liberty that inspired many Americans came from a very popular play at the time, Cato, A Tragedy. I'm going to repeat this because this is... Uh, really something that's lost in time that should probably uh, be examined again. Cato, a tragedy, which probably does more to define liberty and freedom than any other artistic work. The play was performed in Charleston, and Washington and Green had it performed at Valley Forge during the darkest days of the war. There is a conversation today about promoting Cato performances on the doorstep of America's 250th anniversary. Secondly, the Revolutionary War effectively ended in Charleston when the last British troops in the South evacuated from what is now known as Liberty Square. This is referenced in my book as Revolutionary War Victory Day rather than British Evacuation Day, as they call it. Liberty Square is America's unknown Victory Day National Park. Now that's cool stuff. 
or could you could you codify your definition of liberty in 10 words in my opinion liberty is first off about absolute refusal to ever submit to being a conquered people and and the reason why i say that is i have been in countries that have uh, experienced have been conquered and have been in conquered two or three or four or five times in the 20th century. And I've come to know some of the people in those countries and the, the, the will, their idea of liberty is much different than Americans. There's actually a whole book about that <laughs> that should be written. I'm really intrigued. So I'm, I'm, it, it, it certainly gets into a psychological and, and uh, viewpoint. A conquered people versus an unconquered people. Or certainly you have that going on. Define that a little bit more. The, the difference between those people and the American view of liberty. What, 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 what do you mean by that? Well, I think our... I think Christopher Gadsden said it the best, liberty or death. Once, in my opinion, sure. this is my opinion now, this is not my research. No, sure. M my opinion is, uh, in from, uh, from my experience, to tell people, to tell troops that this is liberty or death. There's no in-between. What's it going to be? What do you want? Do you want to live as a conquered person? To someone else's whim or will, where you have no say-so? Or is this something that you're willing to fight to the death for? Mm. It's a personal decision. And if you get enough people to commit to that, then you have a collective decision. And once you have a collective decision, you have a United States. So excited you came on to our podcast. I appreciate you doing that. The, the name of the book is Victory Day, Winning American Independence, The Defeat of the British Southern Strategy. You did a great work here. How would people find your book? Well, uh, the book is available online through Amazon Books or Barnes & Noble Books. Uh, if For people that live down in Charleston, I would uh, uh, point you to uh, The Exchange. Uh, the Exchange, uh, it sells the book. Uh, I should mention that a portion of the proceeds go to uh, The Exchange Building. Uh, the Exchange Building, was uh, it's a British-built building, and it still exists in Charleston. I, I often refer to it as the Independence Hall of the South. And uh, they can also find it at the Preservation Society. They can also find it at the Charleston Historical Society. And they can find it at the gift shops at Fort Moultrie and Fort Sullivan. I have also been informed by the Upcountry Museum in Greenville that they are carrying the book as well. It's a great book. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it.